Good morning and welcome. As James said, we are into the fifth of our series of studies, Doing the Christian Life Together, and central to this series is really what is God's idea, His plan, His purpose for His church. And that becomes kind of central to the idea that it is His church. And our responsibility is to really bring our lives into agreement with that purpose. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16? And I want to begin reading in verse 13, which is really the first time that Jesus uses the word church and uh, begins to define some important aspects of it. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together? It begins, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do, you say that the, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, He asked, Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask that you would open your word and you would open our hearts and that between those two places, Lord, your Holy Spirit would do a work that would affect us in ways that would be positive. We look for your grace in this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Probably the initial question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the church? And it's not a simple answer as one might think, nor is it as obvious as we might assume. You know, to some people, you say word church and their first thought is a building, which makes sense. To others, it's an organization or an institution like a denomination or group of churches or whatever. Even to other people, it really elicits a feeling or an emotion. They may have a warm, sentimental uh, touch of reminders of things like weddings or funerals or christenings, potlucks, family gatherings, and all those sorts of things. In fact, with my mom, she used to always point out to me as she attended here that it doesn't feel like a church without a choir and an organ. <laughs> I get it, mom. You want to play the organ and lead the choir. Okay, but... This, is kind of, this was an emotive response that she had going back to her childhood. That was a central feature that she found most touching and moving. Some other people on the other extreme, it brings up some painful, angry, even fearful emotions. They've had experiences with church that was supposed to be a safe place, and it wasn't. It was to be a place that makes them feel worse than they already feel rather than some place that makes them feel better. And from a historical perspective, it, it's understandable because we live in a gravitational world and the idea of gravity isn't things that, that get, things get, go up and get better and better. They tend to deteriorate and degrade and get lower and lower. And even in terms of the church, when we look at that first church, it becomes the reference point for us as Christians, what the early church did, because we realize in so many ways the church drifts away from that. 
as I put in a recent blog that will be appearing one of these days, basically I said it goes through four stages. We start as a movement, then we become a ministry because we organize what God is doing, and then over time, nobody knows how long, but eventually those, every ministry turns into a machine more important for its own sustenance and existence than it is for whatever it does. And then eventually it'll end up being a monument. In fact, if you've ever been to Europe, you've visited many of the great churches of Russia, and what makes them great is the massive and incredible architecture that went into building them. And it's hard to imagine that there were also at one time people in them. But if you show up on a Sunday morning, this place that can hold thousands many times will have 30 or 40 or 50 elderly women whose husbands long ago died, probably because they wanted to. But bottom line is... Um, you realize that it's, it's a hollow shell. It is more like a tomb than it is a place, a, a temple to God. So the question really is important for us to answer. What did Jesus mean when he talked about the church? What was, what was the image that he was projecting upon his disciples that they should see as being the, the prototype, the template, the, the, the governing principle and concepts? Well, if you've read the Gospels or the book of Acts, uh, you do realize, I'm sure, that the first Christians were not so much Christians, they were Jews. They, they saw themselves in that context. They, they met in the same synagogues that they had lived, lived, met in for years before. They, they went there for praying. They went there for teaching. They went to the temple for worship and sacrifice. But one thing was very clear is Gentiles were not welcome in synagogues and certainly were not welcomed within the t interior boundaries of the temple itself. But then something changed. First of all, Jesus in the Gospels repeatedly warned His disciples that the temple that they centered themselves on was going to be gone before too long, and as it proved to be the case, it was removed by the Romans never to be replaced, never to be rebuilt again. So that when, but when you add to it that very quickly the number of Gentile converts began to outnumber the Jewish converts. And you remember from the book of Acts in chapter 10, chapter 15, that this was an unintentional consequence. Peter had no intention of leading the Gentiles to the, to the Christ until God by force pushed him into a situation where he's preaching to the Roman centurion Cornelius and he and his household get saved. And suddenly he's called up on charges to answer, what in the world have you done? Even his own disciples, other brothers of the church, didn't understand, what are you doing allowing Gentiles? What were you doing slumming around with Gentiles in the city of Caesarea? And then in chapter 15, we have the great council of Jerusalem where the church leaders all come together to try to resolve this issue. How are we going to deal with the fact that suddenly we're now outnumbered by Gentiles? The gospel is growing quickly in the Gentile world, and the primary persecutor of the Christians is not the Romans or the Greeks or anybody else. It's primarily the Jewish community itself that sees it as a heresy and a schism that can destroy Judaism. Something else needed to come into existence, something that, as always is the case, that God, and especially through His Son Christ, foresaw, and it was this thing we call the church. And that's probably why Jesus really came up with a, a new name uh, to give a new identity to something that God was going to do that was new. 
The Greek word is ekklesia. It, 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 it really is a combination of two Greek words. It means to assemble and to call out. In other words, you call out to specifically individuals who are invited and they assemble together. In the Greek community, it was the citizens of the city. And keep in mind that not everybody was a citizen. You had to own property to be a citizen. And so only those who were considered property holders would be invited to a public meeting where they would settle the affairs of the city in somewhat of a democratic process. But Jesus took that term and he gave it a really a, a much broader definition. It was directed towards citizens, but not citizens of any nation, state, or city of this world, but rather the cities, citizens of the kingdom of God. And he was calling them out, not from a geographical location, but really from a culture and a lifestyle. He was calling them out of the world, if you will, into this new community of believers called the church. So that the church became this body of believers, called out by God from the world to live as his people under his authority. He became the king, the ruler, the Lord of this new community, and their life was governed by his principles and his spirit. Jesus only used the word ecclesia twice in the Gospels, but he gave it a, a special and kind of exclusive meaning in the sense that this was a new kingdom, of a new community that he was going to form on the earth that was separate and distinct from every other community on the planet. They were no longer to be citizens of the place from which they had come, but rather, as Philippians 3.20 says, they were citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, this citizenship trumped all other forms of citizenship. As Paul would say to the Colossians in chapter 3, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ in all and is in all. That if you are part of this new community, Christ is in you and everything about your life is governed by him. He becomes the defining characteristic of the community because he's the defining characteristic of all the individuals within that community. So that when Peter was speaking of this new community, he was talking about a whole new identity that was granted to us by God when he says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That he has chosen and appointed you and empowered you and transformed you for a purpose. And that purpose is to invite other people to become part of this new community, this new nationality that supersedes any other identity. That more than being a citizen of the United States, I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven through Jesus Christ. And then rather than somebody having another identity or a nationality or cultural, ethic, ethical background, they are instead transcended by the fact that we are one in Christ. Our modern equivalent of this word ecclesia is, is the word uh, church. And, and it comes from really an, an Anglo-German root, which simply means belonging to the Lord. 
That the church was this thing that belonged to God. And its church is, exists as a universal entity. As, as Paul said in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That when I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and I receive His Spirit, I'm born again of the Spirit of God, I automatically become part of the church. It's just something automatically that's given to me. In the same way that when a child comes from, is gestated in the womb of his mother in any country he happens to be in, comes to the United States and gives birth in this country, he or she automatically becomes a citizen of this nation simply by being here at this point in this moment in time. And the same thing is true for everyone who gives their life, whether they be in India or whether they be in China or whether they be in Russia or France, whatever, or the United States, the moment they give their life to Jesus Christ, they enter into this universal entity called the church. But it also has its local expressions, which really is obvious or makes sense. Really, when, when we find that Paul is making reference to uh, the groupings of believers, he says things like in Romans 16, 5, greet also the church that meets in their house. That even Rome, the godless capital of this massive empire, had households, homes, where basically believers would meet. There was no concept of building buildings dedicated to that purpose. Or there was no concept of building temples, certainly, or anything of that nature. This was really grassroots. This was really fundamental. It was about a group of people who had this shared heritage in the blood of Jesus Christ coming together in fellowship. That many of the things that we think are part and parcel of what makes up a church are things that are, are, are neither good nor bad necessarily, but they certainly don't define what the church is. Jesus gives that a much more basic definition. It's not simply something that we do, that is, or attend when we talk about the church. As Canon Ernest made the comment, he said, we don't go to church, we are the church. And in a way, we need to beware of, of a party spirit. What I mean by a party spirit isn't that you want to go out and party. <clears throat> you need to be aware of that one also. But what I mean by a party spirit is, is this partisanship, this, this idea of the sectarian mindset that suddenly if you're not part of our local group or our particular denomination or, or movement or whatever, somehow you're a second-tiered saint. Human nature loves to make those kind of arbitrary distinctions so some people can feel better about themselves by feeling not so good about someone else. But the Bible doesn't teach that. It says, you know, we are called to be one, and, and there's a unity that's supposed to be there, that loyalty and, and love for something or someone is great as long as it doesn't lead to an exclusiveness, an elitism, a, a pride that somehow says, you may know God, but we know Him just a little bit better which it may be partially true. You may know something better than somebody else, but granted, they may in turn know something far better than you. Something we'll talk about, the need we have for each other. 
But when we look at the two times that Jesus talked about the church and the Gospels, He tells us some very important fundamental things. For example, the passage that we read at our opening. Jesus gave basically five what I call foundational principles, things you, you kind of have to understand about the church if you have any hope of getting it right. And the first one, I, I simply tried to summarize them in one word, but first I would say it begins with Christ. You can only become part of His church if you know who He is. So that Peter's confession, when he says, when Jesus asks, who are you? Who am I? He says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the one the prophet spoke of that would come in the fullness of time to not only redeem Israel, but to save us from our sins. You are the Christ. You are, in fact, the son of the living God, the very manifestation of God on earth. That's who you are. And the point is that someone can go to a church and they can wear the lapel of a Christian, but as someone has said often, just because you sleep in a garage doesn't make you a car, showing up in a church doesn't make you a Christian, even if you've been hanging out for years, serving and giving and doing all these things. That doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is what Peter confessed is truth in your life. Not because someone else told you, but because it is something the Spirit of God has revealed to you, which is the second thing that Jesus said. Because right in the heels of Peter making this statement, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon of Jonah, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. How does a, someone become a Christian? They become a Christian by God opening the eyes of their understanding. You can't seek it out, you can't study it out, you can't learn it, you can't will it, you can't meditate yourself into it. God has to open your eyes so that you will open your heart because it comes from heaven. He says, to Peter, this what just came out of your mouth, this statement and confession publicly of who I am, and you have to understand how radically bold it was for Peter to say something like that. Other people were executed for saying those kind of things. And Peter blurts this out, and Jesus says, you need to understand that confidence that you have of who I am. That knowledge and understanding, that surety in your soul did not come from you, Peter. It didn't come because someone else told you this. Even if I had told you this, this is because God the Father has revealed it to you. Literally, the Greek word apokalupto, it just means literally the curtain being pulled back and you can see. It's this idea, suddenly I see what was unseeable and unknowable just a moment before. The thirdly, he says, this is foundational. This is what the church is built on, which leads us to one of the most sadly misinterpreted, misapplied passages in the Bible. When he says to him, he says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, because we don't read the Greek, we tend to miss the subtlety of what Jesus just said. He says, Peter, I'm telling you who you are. You're Petra. You're Petros. You're, you're a rock. You're a stone. It can be anything from a pebble on the ground to a boulder on the side of the hill. Depending in moments in Peter's life, sometimes he was a boulder and sometimes he was a pebble like the rest of us. He says, but this is who you are, but on this rock, this Petra, 
this is what I'm going to build my rock. And we say Petra, we're talking about Half Dome, we're talking about Gibraltar, we're talking about a massive stone formation. Peter, you are a man, you're a good man, but you're just a man. But I'm going to build my church not on men or not even on the things that men say. I'm going to build my church on this confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then not only does that lead us into the church, the church becomes when it becomes what it's supposed to be when it is obsessed with proclaiming that message that Jesus is the Christ, He is the Son of the living God. His church will be built upon that. That's the soil in which vibrant Christianity lives and grows and keeps from becoming simply a mechanism or a monument to something of the past. That fourthly, he said, that church has a mission. And that was to introduce other peoples to Jesus. When he says to him, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, <clears throat> the second most often misinterpreted passage of the Bible. Because when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, it's the power to unlock the door that lets other people in. I'm giving you the, the ability to reveal who I am to the world around you, that your life will be an expressive testimony of the reality of the living Christ. And when he talks about loosing and bounding, it was a very common rabbinical metaphor of the day where they would, the scriptures were written on scrolls that were bound with cords. And when you unloosed the cord, it meant you were going to reveal what was in the text. And when you finished revealing it, you closed it and it gave a finality to your teaching. In other words, you're going to have authority as I had authority to proclaim the kingdom of God to men. That this was about how that we, as Christ's representative, are to live a life that is on mission to declare to the world who Jesus is. And then the very last thing that he says to them is, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What does he mean by that? In an ancient city, ancient walled cities, the strongest, most prominent, impressive part of the wall was always the gatehouse. Because the gatehouse was the place that was most vulnerable to attack, and therefore they built them to be the most impenetrable. That became the major physical structure in the city, and he says basically that's the stronghold. That's what they really refer to it as, the stronghold. And he's saying essentially that the, all the powers of death and, and the devil will never be able to overcome the church as long as the church is founded on the confession of Christ. It's impregnable. That the church has this unbelievable power. And all you and I have to do is do a cursory historical review of Christianity and world history, and what do we find? There have been so many efforts in so many places, even today in various places around the world, to stamp out Christianity, to shut it out, to drive it out of that culture, that nation, the lives of the people. And so far, the, the, the score is a, a million to one to Jesus and nothing to those who would oppress His church. His church keeps on coming back. It's more pernicious than whack-a-mole. <laughs> it just keeps on popping up in different places. And ironically, the place where the church is supposed to be the most impotent is often the place where its greatest power is expressed and its greatest number of converts are found.
Now, the second time that Jesus used this term, it was in the context of church discipline, chapter 18, where uh, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, would to God we'd do that. If he listens to you and you have won your brother over, but if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, in other words, a non-believer, I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you of my Father in heaven. For wherever, where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, aside from the obvious instructions of how we are supposed to deal with conflict within the church, and I'll save that for another message, But he again tells us in the second passage three very important things about the church or how it's supposed to function. That first and foremost, it's intended to be a community that regularly comes together. The word, he says, when you come together, sunago in Greek, literally means that. It means that we are drawn together in community, that we meet together, that there's an intersection of our lives. And we can see how in Christianity today, or at least as it's lived in the Western culture that we're part of, how that we kind of sort of do that to one degree or another. Because we are really in many ways reflective of our cultural experience. So the church for many people is a place where you come in, you sit down, you spectate for, say for in our example, for 30 minutes times three. You, you, you sit there as a spectator and you watch the goings-on that are taking place and then you get up and you go home. And you kind of, a church therefore becomes this rarefied environment, kind of a spiritual terrarium that we grow in, but not really a place that defines our life. But that wasn't the biblical idea. When you read the first two, the second chapter of Acts where he talks about how the church came together every day and they, they broke bread together and they prayed together. They went from house to house because they didn't have anything else but each other's houses. And they taught the word and they learned the word and they shared the gospel and great power came upon them. We realized that what was really the, the source of energy was the Holy Spirit working through a community of believers. There were no...